You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Levesay from the History of the Second World War podcast. Join me on a journey through the most destructive conflict in human history, a journey that will take us not just through the famous campaigns and cataclysmic battles, but also to the lesser well-known corners of the war that touched millions all over the world, as we try and answer not just the questions of what and where, but how and why. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms or at historyofthesecondworldwar.com. Hey everyone, thanks for tuning in to episode 264 of our Civil War podcast. I'm Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Welcome to the podcast. As y'all recall, with the last show, it was Saturday, May 2nd, 1863, and we got Stonewall Jackson started on his famous flank march. Despite Stonewall's desire that the movement would be done in secret, without the enemy's knowledge, the march had hardly started before Federal observers at Hazel Grove spotted the Confederates through a gap in the trees as the rebel infantry hustled through a short, exposed stretch along the the Furnace Road. The Federals shelled the marching Confederates, but their brief view of the rebels as they double-timed past the exposed spot and the fact the Yankee gunners were essentially shooting down a narrow alley through the trees made it difficult to fire with any real effect, and so the cannonade harassed but did no real harm to the Confederates. But a bit farther along, as the column passed Catherine Furnace, where the area all around the complex had been cleared of timber, the Confederates were again spotted by Federal observers at Hazel Grove, as the rebels turned south to follow a road the Furnace's owner, Charles Welford, had recently cut through the wilderness. Stonewall Jackson had worried that the Federals might send scouts, or something worse, south from Hazel Grove toward Catherine Furnace, So he detached a single regiment, the 23rd Georgia, from the column and had it take up a defensive position just north of the furnace. The Georgians were to serve as a protective screen, holding back any enemy attempts to probe south from Hazel Grove. But as we talked about last week, the Federals did more than probe south from Hazel Grove. That's because 3rd Corps Commander Dan Sickles was itching for a fight, since he was convinced the Confederates moving across his front and marching away to the south were part of a general withdrawal of Lee's army, away from the Federals at Chancellorsville. And so that afternoon, Sickles launched an aggressive push toward Catherine Furnace. Unknown to Sickles, though, by the time he began his advance, Almost the entire Confederate column had already made it past the furnace. As the Federals advanced, the 23rd Georgia fell back to the furnace itself, but still the Yankees continued to push forward, and they had numbers on their side. 
Under heavy pressure, the Georgians fell back to an unfinished railroad cut where over 260 of them were captured. Although he'd been ordered not to bring on a general engagement, Sickles had continued to order more men southward from Hazel Grove toward the furnace. He also moved a division up into position for support. The Federal troops who had advanced down to the furnace were suddenly blasted by a furious fire from their left, fire that came from Robert E. Lee's portion of the Confederate lines. You see, Lee had heard the sounds of battle around Catherine Furnace and decided to order a brigade of Mississippians to march over and take the pressure off Stonewall's force. The Mississippians slipped into the woods adjacent to swampy Lewis Run and unleashed an effective volley on the Federals across the stream. As the Yankees at the Furnace redirected their attention from south to east to confront this threat, Lee decided to add a second brigade to the fight. As these Confederate reinforcements arrived on the scene, Sickles panicked. Suddenly afraid that he'd bitten off more than he could chew, Sickles called for help. In response, Hooker sent elements of Slocum's 12th Corps, part of Howard's 11th Corps, and some cavalry. For his part, Stonewall did send his last brigade back to help the 23rd Georgia, but they saw little action and soon returned to join the flank march. As the fighting between the Federals around the furnace and the troops Robert E. Lee had sent over became a standoff, the entire episode only reinforced the Yankees' belief that the Confederates were retreating. Right, because from the Federal standpoint, Stonewall had appeared to abandon the 23rd Georgia in his haste to escape the wilderness. And Lee's aggressiveness appeared to be an attempt to reopen the Confederate Army's line of retreat. Brigadier General Governor K. Warren summed up the prevailing opinion among the Federals when he said, quote, There was a general feeling in the Army that Lee's Army was running away. Satisfied that he had the rebels divided and discombobulated, Hooker reconfigured his lines and consolidated his hold on Catherine Furness. And so when all was said and done, the sacrificial stand of several hundred Georgians and Lee's quick response caused Hooker to commit over 20,000 troops to an irrelevant corner of the battlefield, thereby weakening his already vulnerable right flank and rear. Hooker had convinced himself that the Confederates must be retreating. Earlier in the day, during a personal inspection of the lines, Hooker had said that Howard should take some measures to secure the 11th Corps' vulnerable, up-in-the-air right flank. But Howard had largely ignored those instructions. And now, Hooker was no longer worried about Howard fortifying his flank. Instead, he had told Howard to send one of his reserve brigades and reinforce Sickles' new position at Catherine Furnace. Howard chose to send Brigadier General Francis Barlow's brigade. And with little happening on his front, Howard even decided to tag along with Barlow's brigade. That meant the 11th Corps was left without its commander and one of its reserve brigades. But no one in the Federal High Command seemed unduly worried about the Army's vulnerable right flank, 
After all, the Confederates' sole concern seemed to be distancing themselves from the strong Union host gathered around Chancellorsville. Stonewall's column had disappeared into the woods south of Catherine Furnace, and Robert E. Lee had only battled the Federals when it appeared Sickles had cut the rebels' line of retreat at the Furnace. On top of that, Hooker received another piece of news that seemed to confirm Lee was pulling out and abandoning his line along the Rappahannock. You see, on May 2nd, Hooker received a report that Jubal Early's Confederates had abandoned their strong position on the heights behind Fredericksburg and marched away. Remember that Robert E. Lee had left Early behind at Fredericksburg to confront the Federals there, while Lee and Stonewall Jackson had went off to deal with the Yankees at Chancellorsville. But unknown to Hooker, Jubal Early's evacuation of the Confederate position at Fredericksburg on May 2nd was the result of a mistake. It happened when Robert E. Lee sent his chief of staff, Colonel Robert Chilton, to Early with discretionary orders for Early to bring almost all of his troops and join Lee, but only if Early thought he could safely pull out and leave just one brigade behind to oppose Sedgwick's Federals at Fredericksburg. Well, somehow Chilton misunderstood Lee's instructions, and when giving the order to Early, Chilton insisted it wasn't open to debate but must be executed immediately. Early later said that, quote, This order took me very much by surprise. End quote. Early reminded Chilton of his original orders from Lee and also pointed out to Chilton the problems associated with pulling out in the face of a numerically superior foe. But Chilton insisted that this was what Lee wanted him to do, so Early reluctantly complied. Leaving behind just one brigade of Louisianans, one regiment of Mississippians, and some artillery, Early ordered the rest of his force to march away. It must be pointed out that an attack by Sedgwick at this point would have overwhelmed the few rebels left behind at Fredericksburg and put Lee in an extremely tight spot. In fact, this was just the sort of opportunity Hooker had been hoping would present itself to his left wing but taking advantage of such an opportunity would have required the general in charge of the federal left wing to show some command initiative, and unfortunately for Hooker, John Sedgwick was not that man, and the Federals didn't advance from their bridgehead below Fredericksburg. As for Jubal Early, once he was out on the road, he'd received a report that the Federals were starting an attack against Fredericksburg, and so he made the decision to turn his whole force back in order to meet this supposed threat. Well, the report of a major federal attack turned out to be wrong, but Early's decision was the right one, since Chilton's blunder could have led to disaster for the Army of Northern Virginia. As it was, after dark, Early's men were able to file back into the positions they'd abandoned hours earlier. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— 
We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. History never says goodbye. It just says, see you later. Edward Galliano was right when he said that. Events keep happening over and over again in some form. And that's the reason I produced the podcast, My History Can Beat Up Your Politics. What is it? We take stories of history and apply them to the events of today to help you perhaps understand them better. We are also part of Airwave Media Network. I've been doing the program since 2006. That's a long time, and the show has a long name. My history can beat up your politics. Find me wherever you get podcasts. After the death step at Catherine Furness, as Stonewall Jackson's column continued its march that afternoon, the terrain along the route offered concealment from federal observers, some of whom were aloft in a hydrogen balloon. The Confederate soldiers didn't know the specifics of their mission, but they sensed something big was unfolding. Jackson's surgeon, Dr. Hunter McGuire, said, quote, Every man in the ranks knew that we were engaged in some great flank movement and they eagerly responded and pressed on at a rapid gait. Stonewall urged the troops in the column to keep up their pace and keep the ranks closed. Officers were ordered to march at the rear of their regiments to minimize straggling. The men marched about one mile every 25 minutes, with a 10-minute break each hour. For their midday meal break, Jackson allowed them only 15 minutes rather than the normal hour. As the march continued mile after mile, Stonewall rode along, constantly urging the men, press forward. Over and over he urged them, press forward, press forward. Temperatures climbed into the 80s, and the men began to suffer severely from thirst, since there were few wells or streams along the route of march. If the heat bothered Stonewall, though, he never showed it. In fact, he wore two shirts— a woolen uniform coat, and a heavy India rubber raincoat all day. Although at the time he made no mention of it to anyone, not even Dr. McGuire, Stonewall had caught a cold and so spent the day bundled up as he rode along. By two o'clock that afternoon, the head of the column was coming up the Brock Road and nearing the intersection with the Orange Plank Road. There, Jackson planned to form his 28,000 men into line of battle and sweep up the Orange Plank Road and into the Federal flank. But Brigadier General Fitzhugh Lee of Jeb Stewart's cavalry and Robert E. Lee's nephew arrived with news about the enemy position. He invited Stonewall to follow him along a narrow pathway through the woods where they came to a cleared hilltop near a farmhouse. What a sight presented itself before me, Fitz Lee later wrote. 
Below and a few hundred yards distant ran the Federal line of battle. There were the lines of defense with the Betis in front and long lines of stacked arms in the rear. Two cannon were visible. The soldiers were in groups in the rear, laughing, chatting, smoking, probably engaged here and there in games of card and other amusements, indulged in feeling safe and comfortable. In rear of them were other parties driving up and butchering beeves. The problem, as Fitz Lee pointed out to Jackson, was that the Orange Plank Road, which Stonewall had originally intended as his avenue of attack, ran straight into the Federal defensive line, not into the Union flank. But from their hilltop vantage point, the two men could see the actual end of the enemy line less than a mile or so farther to the west. However, if Jackson followed the new route now suggested by Fitzley, Fitzley, he could still swing his force over to the west and strike the vulnerable Federal flank, with plenty of cover from the wilderness to shield his moves. Lee later remembered how, quote, Stonewall's face bore an expression of intense interest during the five minutes he was on the hill. The paint of approaching battle was coloring his cheeks, and he was radiant to find that no preparation had been made to guard against a flank attack. Jackson rode back to the head of the column and began barking out orders. It was just after three o'clock, and Stonewall penned a quick dispatch to Robert E. Lee. In four sentences, he reported that his lead division was up, and the next two appeared to be well on their way. He also confirmed that the Federals were still maintaining their defensive lines around Chancellorsville. He closed by saying, I hope as soon as practicable to attack. I trust that an ever-kind providence will bless us with great success. The Confederate flank march was nearly over, but the race was still on. It was just after five o'clock, and daylight would linger for only a few more hours. Stonewall Jackson needed to get his attack underway while there was still time to exploit his advantage. Of the 28,000 men in his command, roughly two-thirds had arrived on the Federal flank and got into position. Robert Rhodes' division would lead the attack. His battle line, two men deep, shoulder to shoulder, stretched nearly a mile to the north and a mile to the south of the Orange Turnpike. Rhodes' five brigades, who numbered nearly 10,000 men in all, would use the turnpike as their axis of advance. It would carry them straight into the right flank, the vulnerable, up-in-the-air right flank of the Federal's 11th Corps. Lined up 200 yards behind Rhodes, Raleigh Colston's division, nearly 8,000 strong, would follow as support. But the majority of Jackson's 3rd Division, his largest, under A.P. Hill, was still coming up. However, Stonewall knew that if he waited for Hill's men to arrive, he'd lose precious daylight. And so he decided to attack with Rhodes and Colston's troops, and Hill's division would be used to support the advance as they became available. Stonewall sent word to his subordinates that they would launch the attack at 5.15. Once underway, he said, quote, under no circumstances was there to be any pause in the advance, end quote. 
Well, that would obviously be easier said than done in the wilderness with its rolling terrain and dense tangle of trees and brush. While that tangled landscape continued to provide cover for the Confederates as they got into position, even more invaluable to them as protection was Joe Hooker's continued belief that the Confederate army was in retreat. As late as 4.10 that afternoon, Hooker said in a telegraph that, quote, We know that the enemy is fleeing, trying to save his trains. Hooker intended to launch a vigorous pursuit of the retreating Confederates the next day, May 3rd. He sent word to his subordinates that each corps was to, quote, replenish your supplies of forage, provisions, and ammunition, and be ready to start at an early hour tomorrow. Not everyone in the 11th Corps shared Hooker's confidence that the rebels were retreating. As a steady stream of reports came in from the picket line that a large force of the enemy was nearby, some of the Union troops began to get nervous. The division that held the right flank of the Corps' position was commanded by Brigadier General Charles Devens. The Massachusetts General loathed many of his subordinates, who were predominantly of German descent, and he refused to heed their warnings that a large force of Confederates was gathering off to the west. Devens had also mixed his prejudices with alcohol. Earlier in the day, while riding his horse, Devens somehow ran his leg into a tree. To cope with the discomfort, he turned to the bottle, and by the time Stonewall was ready to launch his attack, Devens was three sheets to the wind. Captain James Power Smith of Stonewall's staff provided the best first-hand account of the moment of attack. He wrote, It must have been after five o'clock in the evening when dispositions were complete. Upon his stout, long-paced little sorrel, General Jackson sat with his visor low over his eyes and his lips compressed. Upon his right sat General Robert E. Rhodes, the very picture of a soldier, and every inch of all that he appeared. "'Are you ready, General Rhodes?' asked Jackson. "'Yes, sir,' replied Rhodes, impatient for the advance. "'You can go forward, then,' said Jackson." Rhodes simply turned and nodded to his adjutant, and the woods rang with a bugle call, sweeping right and left along the division line of battle. Then the long lines of skirmishers dashed forward through the thick underbrush, followed by the massed brigade formations. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is actually a back issue of Blue and Gray magazine. Sadly, Blue and Gray magazine is no longer in business, but for many years they put out some stellar issues by some top-notch historians, like this one, Volume 29, Number 4, which features an article on the action at Chancellorsville from April 28th to May 2nd by none other than Frank O'Reilly. O'Reilly's feature article is great. And as always with Blue and Gray, there are a whole set of excellent maps tracking the movements of the armies and the fighting. So that's Blue and Gray Magazine, Volume 29, Issue Number 4. Don't forget you can find all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, 
which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. As we wrap up this episode, we want to send out a big thank you to the newest members of the Strawfoot Brigade, Carla, John, and Carl. We wanted to give a shout out to Carl, who is a high school teacher in Sweden with a special interest in the American Civil War. He told us he dedicates two weeks to discussing the war and related topics, and then said, quote, I believe I am the only teacher in Sweden that performs a genuine rebel yell in front of the class. <laughs> we love it. You go, Carl. Uh, all right, then before we go, we want to remind you that the music you hear at the start and at the end of every episode of the podcast is from the song Midnight on the Water, and we use it with the kind permission of Spiritwood Music. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861-1865, to a history podcast. Rich and I do hope you'll join us again next time when we'll continue with the story of the Battle of Chancellorsville. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye.